Geogreve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This week is rich in festivals. The Hindus' Ramanavami was on Sunday. The Sikhs' Vaisakhi was yesterday. We're halfway through the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Passover begins tonight for Jews and for Christians. Today is Good Friday and Easter is on Sunday. It has been 33 years since Easter, Passover and Ramadan last coincided. And tonight we'll unpack various aspects of this coincidence in light of the war in Ukraine. In a few minutes, I'll be joined from Jerusalem by the Ukrainian campaigner Natan Sharansky, one-time Soviet dissident and former Deputy Prime Minister of Israel. Also, the journalist, broadcaster and former Dominican friar Mark Dowd will talk to us about how a supposedly good God can let terrible things happen in the world. But first, I'm joined by Professor Ruja Fazerli. Associate Professor in Islamic Civilizations at the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Studies in Trinity College, Dublin, and Chairperson of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Ruja, as a 12-year-old child, you fled Iran with your mother and made Ireland your home. Might you tell us a little about your experience and perhaps what it can teach us during the current humanitarian migrant crisis? Um, yes, of course. Um, maybe before even I get to Iran, just anecdotally, um, about 10 days ago, I was in uh, Germany and uh, on, the, on the train from Frankfurt uh, uh, to Jena and, and then back. Uh, one thing I witnessed was so many Ukrainian mothers with their children. Uh, and that that really uh, made me think one of my own daughter. So many of them were uh, her age. Mm. And and the other, it reminded me of my own mother, uh, who brought two daughters, two teenage daughters, to Ireland uh, in 1992. Um, and as as you know, uh, Iran was at war with Iraq for eight years, 1980 to 1988. Uh, so I was born uh, into the war. Uh, that that's what we knew. Uh, and I lost my own father, who was a medical doctor, uh, in the war when when I was three. So Iran as well, you have to to look at the context as well. It was not only war, but also we were dealing with a very fundamentalist Islamic regime. Uh, so from one in one hand, there was war and we lost so many, so many people. Uh, there, there are no winners in war. So both Iraqi side and the Iranian side lost so many. So apart from remembering one of my own first memories is my father's funeral. And, uh, and you know, I, I really, and, and again, you know, when I think of that, I think of my mother because she was crying. And I, I can remember also the scents um, they, because they, they throw in uh, some of these funerals, there is rose water. So there was a scent of rose water and sweat all mixed together. Uh, and I remember like cuddling up to her and not understanding why she was crying, why so many people were crying because you're so little. And you're I even <laughs> you're, <laughs> and even my mom said when I said your father is gone, he's not coming back. Apparently, I said something like, you know, can we go and buy uh, a father from the bazaar? <laughs> uh, like that. that's that's your your mm. your childhood understanding. But as I grew uh, older a little bit and I start to understand that sense of loss became uh, greater in many ways. This how experience. did the, um, if it did, how did you notice the encroaching Islamic fundamentalism? How did that affect your life, you know, by the time you left age 12? Yeah, so 
Schools were segregated. We used to go to a school in shifts. So uh, one week, uh, girls used to go in the morning and boys <laughs> in the evening. And the next week, it used to change. Uh, we had to wear the headscarf. Um, and uh, and also, th there were um, security guards or Islamic revolutionary guards uh, that used to patrol uh, the, the cities. And if you had bad, so-called so bad hijab, if your hair was short, they would stop you. And with my mom as well, uh, a number of times where she was stopped, even for some infringes that she didn't know about, for example, her coat missing a button once, uh, that, that she was taken actually to the station. Ruja, as chairwoman of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, you'll be aware that some migrant leaders are questioning the way in which Ukraine refugees appear to be fast-tracked, while other migrants continue to live in long-term direct provision um, or struggle to even arrive in this country. And an Irish Times article this week you might have seen worried that all of Europe, not just Ireland, is creating a two-tier system for refugees. Would you agree with that? Um, so... Yes, in in many ways, uh, but I, I also want us to see this as an opportunity. I want us to see this as a system that hopefully works and it's a system that should be used for, uh, you know, no matter who uh, the displaced people are. And maybe um, maybe a little bit of explanation as well. Uh, basically, what has been uh, activated is uh, what's called the EU Temporary Protection Directive. And uh, this has been in place since 2001, but had not been activated. So to 2001, since the Kosovo uh, crisis or the, the Kosovo war. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, there were some states that had called for its activation. So, for example, in 2003, during the Iraq war, uh, you had uh, more than 300,000 displaced people at the time and, uh, you know, trying to get to, to the EU and Spain called uh, for this to be activated. Then with the Libyan war, the same, you had Malta and Italy who called for this to be activated. It wasn't activated. 2015, uh, we had uh, nearly one and a half million Syrian displaced. And, uh, well, more than that, but these are people who, uh, you know, are, are trying to, to get to the EU as well. So many people called for this to be activated. It wasn't activated. It's only in 2022, 4th of March, that this was activated uh, for the Ukrainian crisis. So, so I think we need to be careful because it's the right thing to do. So when we criticize it, we should also keep reminding uh, our EU states that you're doing the right thing, but this right thing should be done for everyone. Uh, you know, Ireland, it, like I, I have a lot of questions of how we are going to deal with the accommodation crisis as well. If you're talking about more than 100,000 people, then um, yeah, it's going to be a huge question and, and a huge ask of resources as well. But at the same time, it is the right thing to do. Before we go, the images of the holy sites uh, that are shared widely at this time of year, particularly this year with the confluence of festivals, they're usually of men, male clerics, male worshippers, male images, in Christianity's case, for God. 
your latest book is on Islamic feminisms. Perhaps you'd tell us about the contribution of women in the holy sites and in the worshipping life of this holy time. So, as with other Abrahamic faiths, uh, Islam shares uh, this very patriarchal structure where most Islamic scholars have been men. Uh, but but there is a change uh, in discourse. So in the last uh, 15 years, especially, there's been uh, a lot of research done, especially on female religious authority. Uh, you see women uh, wanting to pray side by side by men and lead d- these prayers as well. Uh, and uh, But you also have movements, for example, in Turkey, uh, where women are asking for better quality uh, of place to worship, so not necessarily unsegregated. Uh, so so it, is, it is a serious uh, movement and, uh, and also what the scholars are doing who work on female religious authority is they are rewriting history to bring these female religious authorities who've been at the margins or not looked at at all to light to say, well, there have been many women uh, scholars of Islam uh, and religious leaders. So let's uh, get to know about them. Ruja Fazieli, Associate Professor of Islamic Civilizations at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Siobhan. And now this evening, we're joined on the line by Natan Sharansky. Natan was a political prisoner in the former Soviet Union and afterwards a long-serving government minister in Israel. Natan, you were born in Donetsk in Ukraine. You must be horrified at what you see happening there right now and what is threatened to happen in the coming days. Yeah, uh, uh, every name of the city or even of the village which is mentioned is connected in one or another way to my childhood, mm-hmm. to my early years, to uh, many friends with whom I show, shared experience. Mariupol, which is now almost erased from the earth, that was the town of our summer camps, where we had our summer vacations on the sea. And uh, it's, it's very sad. It's very sad, and uh, it's... Uh, uh, bewildering to see that somebody is trying to restore the Soviet Empire in such a rude, vulgar, cruel uh, way. And uh, I only hope that the world understands that it's not kind of debate about peace of land, uh, but it's really attempt to change the, all the principles on which our world is built and uh, to put against evil against good. You were raised in Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union, but you now live in Jerusalem. Are you concerned that Israel could be doing more to protest the war, to bring the world to the sort of realisation you just described? Because it seems from Ireland that... Israel has condemned the war, but then it hasn't done things that other countries have done, like sanctioning its many Russian billionaires who, yeah. do, who have connections with Israel. Uh, well, uh, I really don't want to enter the debate whether Israel did more or less than some other countries. I, I'd say, in general, the free world, and including my own country, Israel is a part of the free world, yeah. is really, to some extent, paralyzed by fear of Putin, and is not doing enough, is not 
fighting as it has to fight against the evil which endangers the free world. And the, in, the, in Israel specifically, our political leaders have, by the way, very serious arguments about the fact that Putin is controlling the skies of Syria. That's why each time when we are attacking the bases of Iranian terrorists in Syria against us, we have to get permission from Putin. And that's why we, we have to be very careful. And I, I understand these arguments as well as I understand the arguments of those in the free world who say that we don't want new nuclear, nuclear war and it is very scary. And that's why we should think how not to irritate Putin too much. I don't accept this and I don't accept this. I believe that is the struggle of uh, the free world for the survival of its very principles on which it is based. Natan, thinking of uh, genocide within living memory, you yourself have been instrumental in creating the International Holocaust Memorial at Babinyar, the site of the massacre of 34,000 Jews in two days in Kiev. This site was one of the first places to be bombed by Russia in early March. Have you any contact with people there? Do you know if it has been restored in any way? Of course, we have very close contact. Look, uh, Babi Yar was the symbol of the Holocaust by bullets because the biggest mass grave, more than 100,000 people in one place, the biggest mass grave of the Holocaust. But at the same time, Babi Yar is the symbol of the efforts of Soviet Union to erase the memory about uh, the Holocaust. And... Uh, that's why they uh, tried physically to change this place, to burn the corpses, to build their big stadiums and uh, to build their TV center. So the attempts of this then Soviet Union to erase the memory of Babiar, and now the efforts of Russia, of Putin, to change the nature of, uh, of the uh, independent Ukraine and at the same time to erase the memory about his own crimes, that's something uh, very symbolic. With Easter and Passover beginning tonight and Ramadan already underway, what steps do you think can be taken so that Jews, Christians and Muslims in Israel can celebrate rather than fear religious diversity? Well, uh, first of all, it's really a great time of three holidays of three civilizations coming not only to one place in Jerusalem, in all Jerusalem, they are always in one place, but only in a meeting in the calendar. And uh, uh, while we have increased tensions this moment, at the same time, we are enjoying now the new reality of so-called Abraham Accords, and suddenly there are so many Arab countries which become absolutely open for Israelis. And the tourists from these countries are coming here. And there are joint ventures. And there is people-to-people dialogue. And that reminds us the real way for peace also between us and Palestinians. Yeah. 
as I'm sure you've heard, um, some see Russia's attempt to take Ukrainian territories for itself as being akin to other countries trying to take other territories for itself, including Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. Now, there's no question here of Israel's right to exist, just a question about it taking new territories in recent years. Well, look, there were no territories taken uh, simply by the initiative of Israel. All the wars were the result of the attempts of our enemies to destroy us. And even today, when we are speaking about Hamas and Hezbollah, who not only don't recognize our state, but say that the very aim of the existence of these organizations is to destroy Israel. So we have to deal with this reality. But as I was saying many times, and I really believe in it, and I was saying it long before, uh, before Oslo and the other agreements, saying that I want Palestinians to have all the rights uh, which I have, uh, and I don't want them to have any right or opportunity to destroy me. So it is very closely connected to the question of uh, our um, security. Nathan Sharansky, okay. thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. And uh, a happy Easter Passover and Ramadan to all of us. And, uh, and a good Passover to you and thank your family you. too. We're joined now on the line from England by the journalist and author Mark Dowd. Mark, your new book, My Tsunami Journey, The Quest for God in a Broken World, begins with you telling us about five words uttered by your dad when you turned on the news in 2004 and learned about the tsunami that killed over a quarter of a million people. He said, God could have stopped that. And I imagine a lot of other people felt just the same in that moment. I'm sure they did. And my dad uh, at that time was 76 years old. He was the kind of man who never missed mass. He was a very devout Catholic. And I'd never seen him ever question the ways and doings of God. And for him suddenly to go, you know, grey-faced and, and stare at me with that question. And, of course, that very conversation we had spawned the following day uh, a two-hour documentary which we made because British TV sent me off on a trip for seven weeks uh, to speak to people in Indonesia and in India and, and in Thailand, to people who'd been you know, really badly affected by this. And, you know, we approached this from an angle of faith and it was remarkable to come across people for whom actually this event of loss strengthened their faith and yet other people, it utterly destroyed it. One of the things I appreciated about your documentary was that it showed the multiplicity and variety of ways that religious people struggled to square a loving, creative God with the prevalence of pain and suffering and random natural disasters in this world. Um, for some, the disasters are karma, for sins committed in a previous life, for others, they cleanse the earth of behaviours committed against Allah's teaching, or they just happen to test one's strength. What did you, as a Catholic, learn from all these different approaches? What it did teach me was some of the things we were taught at school uh, and sometimes from the pulpit in churches really didn't stack up. I mean, as a Christian, sometimes we're told these uh, terrible things like um, the suffering in, in earthquakes and, and diseases are a divine punishment for sin. Well, really, a three 
year-old child that dies of leukemia. What possibly uh, could that creature have done to, to deserve that? We're sometimes told that suffering makes us better and it enhances our character, and that's why God almost uses it as an instrument. But, you know, many people are broken by suffering. People are driven to take their own lives. Some people cannot actually cope with what life throws at them. And so in the journey itself, one is left at the end with the image of the cross, and here we are talking on Good Friday, that God is not remote and far away from us in suffering, that that at the age of 33, um, the human being that had a three-year ministry goes to the most excruciating and painful death and abandoned by practically everybody. I mean, this is an image of almost total failure. And yet we are told that God is there. And three days later, says to us, this is not the final word. Mark, you point out the ways in which theology has got corrupted in some Christian traditions and ended up with these really very unhelpful theologies that go a long way from from what the Good Friday to Easter message of Christianity is. But you also press theology to do more with um, some of the difficulties. And one of the things I was particularly interested in was this idea that God created creation, but creation then has its own processes. We've no ground to expect God to intervene in those processes. It's a, it's a model that says that we need to change our expectations in line with what we do know of God. Yes, I think that there's a key element in one of the Gospels here when Jesus uh, says that, Verily I say unto you, unless a grain of seed die and go into the ground, you will not have regeneration and new life. What there was across these religions uh, in terms of a common approach was this notion of the inseparability of, of creation and destruction. This is the only created world that we know. Uh, and therefore I am left with the conclusion that it, it does not constrain and it does not limit the power of God to say that this way that the positivities and negativities are interdependent on one another uh, is just the way it has to be. And we have to try and, and live and learn to live with that world, knowing that there is a transcendent message in that empty tomb, because God has said beyond this life, there is another dimension and this is not the final story. Mark Dowd, author of My Tsunami Journey, The Quest for God in a Broken World, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. To conclude tonight's programme, which is the last in the current series, Trina Marshall, the harpist with the Chieftains, is going to play Easter Snow. As with many traditional tunes, there's debate about its name. For some, it evokes the cold snap Easter can bring. For others, it's a mistranslation of the Irish. And for yet more, it's about a woman called Esther Snow. But for Trina Marshall, who got the tune from Matt Malloy, it refers to the blossoms that bloom only to fall all around us at this most fragile time of year. The Leap of Faith will return later on in the year. Thank you for listening.
The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Jamie Doyle and Mark McGrath. Research was by Sinead Kennedy. And the broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. The producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. You can email the programme at faith at rte.ie.